You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The thought first struck me as I was rereading Murder on the Orient Express. I notice how the train comes from the east. There are 13 passengers at the heart of the story, one of whom is a monster, a Judas. I notice how these passengers come from all walks of life and all nationalities. I notice how one of the investigators, a helper of Hercule Poirot, is a Dr. Constantine. Now, isn't the story of Jesus an eastern story made popular by another Constantine? Did Jesus not have 12 disciples with a Judas among them? Was Palestine not a mixed Orient Express of nationalities? The foreignness of Hercule Poirot is often remarked upon. Time and again, he saves the day. The foreigner whose intervention is salvific. Isn't that one way of seeing Jesus? These observations led me to examine the murder mysteries of Agatha Christie in a new light. I began to notice things in a jumble. There is meaning in every small incident. Agatha Christie's stories are narratives of revelatory detail, hence the spare, direct language and the short, numerous paragraphs and chapters, as in the Gospels. Only the essential is recounted. Murder mysteries, like the Gospels, are distillations. I notice the near total absence of children in Agatha Christie, because murder is a decidedly adult entertainment, just as they are largely absent from the Gospels, which also address an adult sensibility. I notice how those who know the truth are always treated with suspicion and disdain. That was the case with Jesus, of course. But look at old Mrs. Marple. Always she knows, and everyone is surprised that she does. And the same with Hercule Poirot. How can that ridiculous little man know anything? But he does. He does. It is the triumph of the meek, in Agatha Christie, as in the Gospels. Yann Martell is the author of the best-selling Booker Prize-winning novel, Life of Pi. He's also the author of Beatrice and Virgil. His new book is The High Mountains of Portugal. Thank you for joining me, Yann. It's a pleasure, Rick. The three chapters of this book are Homeless, Homeward, and Home. And I don't think I'm giving too much away if I uh, recall that near the end of the book you write that home is a story. And I'm paraphrasing you a little bit here. I think that stories and stories as the home of the human heart and the human experience are at the home and the heart of this novel as well. Absolutely. I think that's completely true. Um, We think now of home as being a physical construct, but it is first and foremost a mental construct. After all, we are, uh, you know, we're transitory beings on this earth, and so wherever we, whatever we call home, is a mental construction, is an act of, of faith and of will. So, and the section called Home in this novel, the last section, curiously enough, features a Canadian who is living in Portugal, a country uh, whose nationality he does not have, who doesn't speak the language, and lives in a village where he knows no one. And yet, it is called Home. So it speaks that, you know, to the point that Home is, is something that you achieve by mental and moral effort. Uh, not by just uh, inhabiting a particular physical space. For me, the pleasures of this book were 
very reminiscent in some ways of a mystery novel because mm. there are three parts that if you were to read them or be told about them un, con, in, out of context, you'd think, well, how did this, does this, all this fit together? Mm. And I think one of the pleasures of reading this book is that of reading a mystery novel where you're trying to figure out how does all this fit together? Did you know the solution of the mystery when you started this book? Yes and no. That's a really good question. Um, yes, to the extent that I had some intent, obviously. To me, it's a novel in three parts. Well, I meant to have those three parts. Um, those three parts are connected in ways that I can see. You know, they share an animal, for example. A an event that takes place in part one will have ramifications in part two and three. I clearly intended those. Um, and then no, to the extent that First of all, I acknowledge it's obvious to me that author intent is very quickly taken over by reader reception. How the reader receives the book very much involves the reader rewriting the book in a sense or bringing something to the book that creates a new text, a final text in his or her mind. So that means interpreting the thing in, some, in ways that go beyond what I intended, and that's totally fine. That's part of the process. So that's one thing that obviously every book is like that, but also... More specifically, this one, there's areas of mystery here that I quite clearly intended. And I'll give you one tiny example. In part two, there is um, an autopsy. And it's sort of a magical realist kind of autopsy. It's a body that's full of objects. And one of the objects is a little sculpted, sculpted wooden object painted the color ochre, whom the pathologist cannot identify what its purpose might be, nor can the wife, who should know. And I did that quite deliberately, having I just arbitrarily chose a randomly sculpted little wooden object with the color ochre. And it was just supposed, if anyone cared, if, if any reader dwells on that, it was supposed to be a mystery that that reader would elucidate somehow, that they would project as to what that thing might be. So that's a tiny example. But in other instances, there's things whose meaning I deliberately leave ambiguous. For example, in part one, there's a quest for an object. What the full meaning of that object might be, I leave to the reader. I give certain hints as to what its possible interpretation might be, one more negative, one more positive. But there's other possible interpretations, and I leave those t for the reader to develop. One of the things I noticed in part one that I really loved about this book was the way you would give really exquisite, beautifully described historical detail that is clearly researched. And at the same time, in the same voice, at the same place, you'd start to confabulate and create details that I think probably were completely flights of fancy. Mm -hmm. But by doing the two in the same prose voice at the same time in the same place, you conflate reality and fantasy in a way that is really, really pleasurable for the reader. And even though we pretty much know where those schisms take place, I, I'd like you to talk about uh, doing the historical research and how much that influenced your flights of fancy. Well, I think the two go closely together. They're, they're, they're necessary. It strikes me that good fiction must be rooted in some kind of reality. Uh, now, you know, science fiction takes place in alternate realities, but they're still based on a certain psychologically truth of what it means to be human, certain scientific truths about, you know, space travel, stuff like that. I think good fiction mixes things that are, if not factually verifiable, are certainly psychologically recognizable with, as you say, flights of fancy, things that are clearly invented, but not invented in a sort of whimsical, meaning, meaningless way, but sort of inventions that 
bring into greater focus the factual basis of what you're reading about. You know, that's the great, great thing about fiction. Fiction is not, is unreal, but that doesn't mean it's not true. I think great fiction is necessarily true, but what it does is that it brings into sharper focus truths that you can't get to if you just stick to facts, to sort of objective factuality. Fiction brings out human truths in existence that can't be accessed by any other means because they sort of, um, they bring out the emotional truth of things, the psychological truths, the sort of existential truths, truths that are only make sense to you as a human being through your subjectivity, but would mean nothing to, you know, another species um, who, who don't need that interpretation of life. You know, dogs don't need stories. Dogs need food, need comfort, need an, a degree of security, but all of those are not expressed to dogs in stories. We need to wrap, uh, we need to weave together the facts of our existence uh, in something that we call stories that make sense of that existence. Well, one of the things I think that this book is really speaks strongly to is the narrative species nature of humanity. This is book really explores that in a number of ways in that um, when we're, we're humans, if I ask you who you are, you're going to tell me a story of who you are. And that's, that's how we define ourselves is through our stories. And these characters in this book are all, their stories define them for us. And also, as we explore them, by creating the pictures in our mind, by creating the story in our mind, we're changing our own story too. Absolutely. One of the characters in part three explicitly says that. He, he's uh, the Canadian in question, Canadian senator who has moved to Portugal with a chimpanzee. <laughs> and at one point he says, explicitly says, you know, my life uh, is my story, is his story with Odo, uh, with the chimpanzee. The chimpanzee name is Odo. He says, you know, his life is his story with Odo. That is what his life is about. So I completely agree with you that... Um, in a sense, the successful life, the great life, is one that has successfully woven a story. And I don't mean a great life like that of a, you know, a, of a U.S. president or whatever. Any story, and a, a, that of, an, of, a, of a fulfilling human life is one that has created a, 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 a complex story. You uh, have a, a chapter in here that deals a lot with Agatha Christie and with the mystery novel and the mystery genre. And one of the things I think the appeals of the mystery genre is that our lives go on and on. And there are really no resolutions that we experience in our lives except for those we create, our birthdays, holidays, and weekends. If we did not have birthdays, holidays, and weekends, humans, I think, would would go insane you because there would be no difference it would just be one life would be one long slog Mm -hmm. you you'd end it (laughs) mystery novels and stories and the mysteries that happen in our lives crimes fiction crime fact and crime fiction those have real stories and Mm -hmm. real resolutions and Mm -hmm. i think that that's the appeal of those, and that's something that you explore in this novel as well. Absolutely, that's uh, it's one thing that's always struck me how Agatha Christie is in the history of the written word, by far the most popular writer ever. She has sold more books than anyone, and by long shot. And I was always one curious as to why that is. Why are her English mysteries, murder mysteries, which are very, very English? You know, they're very set. In, even if they're not set in England, the sensibility is very English. 
um, the critiques of the class system and all that. They're very, it's a very, they're, her humor is very English, so that you think would limit its appeal, but it hasn't. She, as I said, stole staggering amounts of books, and I always wondered why, and I've come to the conclusion that it's in part precisely because she addresses the mystery of life by making it entertaining. She brings us close to murder, but within a moral framework, and she makes death palatable. She makes talking about death palatable because there's such wonderful entertainments. But as we're being entertained, we're also, I think in a subconscious way, absorbing certain lessons about life, about the meaning of life. And that feat of talking about death in a palatable way was replicated, was originated 2,000 years ago with the Jesus event. Jesus did that same thing of talking about death in a way that was palatable because he resurrected. No one likes talking about death in a real way because it's so uncomfortable. We're so terrified of our finality. People who manage to talk about death but keep us interested and don't let us sink into despair will be remembered. And Jesus did that by resurrecting, which is unparalleled in the history of religion. Gods, first of all, aren't necessarily born the way humans are. Um, and you know, uh, and and you know, the Greek gods were born, but in a sort of a crazy way, coming out of Zeus's head, for example, Athena. <laughs> uh, not a way that they're not normally born in the conventional way of humans, the way Jesus was, and they certainly don't die. Gods don't die nearly by definition. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus, wonderfully, the story, and I think that's why the Jesus event struck us so much, is that he, his life parallels our human lives. You know, we're born, we strive, we struggle, we f we we try to do our best, and then we die. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did, and that that parallel, imitating our lives, but giving it a meaning that we ourselves couldn't have achieved, giving it the kind of resolution that we can achieve by resurrecting, so startled the Western imagination that it changed the course of Western history. So I think the two echo each other, Agatha Christie and, 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 and the Jesus event, which is why I, I, and there's a section in the novel where the, the wife of a doctor creates this, this theory that she expounds on at great length about the similarities between the Gospels and Agatha Christie. And, and I, I think those were, were, are, are quite real. Uh, actually, at point, one point, the character says, Maria says, you know, we're all, we all live, uh, 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 even of those who haven't experienced any violence, we all uh, experience at least one murder, our own, at the end of our lives. And we might as well figure out the mystery of that, of who did it and why it was done before it actually happens. I really do think we, we live a murder mystery. Now, in our life of excessive rationality and the illusion that we're immortal, we forget that. But really, it is the case that life is a mystery, and we should try to work out, elucidate that mystery, find a resolution before it actually happens to us. That portion, I thought, was a fine example of what could only be called a rant. Mm. <laughs> and I think you do a lot of that in this book, where you'll get your characters going and get your prose and your sentences going and it just has it's like an unstoppable train not unlike that car we get introduced yeah. to <laughs> yeah in part two maria is very much uh driven by the word she loves the spoken word mm -hmm. and um i do believe in in novels of ideas and in canada they're talking about this being a novel of ideas um of course we need to be entertained by what we read uh, of course you want plot but i also believe that a book lasts if it arrests the reader in some way or another. Mm -hmm. And you can do that by having shocking events, you know, shockingly violent, shockingly funny, shockingly this, shockingly that. But I prefer the gentle approach of, have you thought of this? And then elaborate it a bit and see if it doesn't stay with, uh, with the reader. And so um, 
Yeah, the idea of, of Agatha Christie and the Gospels is one way I, I thought of doing that. The relationship between this Canadian senator and the chimpanzee is another one. Um, there's another things I do that I'm in the hope that, yes, hopefully you're, you're being entertained, but also hopefully you're thinking, even if it's a bit of work, hopefully that'll nourish you and you'll, because of that, remember it l- longer and hopefully be changed by it. Because, of course, that's the ultimate point of, of, uh, uh, of art is to s- somehow change the person somewhat. Well, your story becomes part of our story. And I think one of the real powers of story that we see demonstrated in this book is your description of the automobile hmm. from somebody who has really never experienced it. And I think that's just like a, such a, a stonkingly amazing piece of writing, a sustained flight of thought. And I think you do a great job of exploring um, something that is utterly familiar to us and turning it into something that's utterly alien mm-hmm. to somebody to whom we can relate. And that's a really interesting kind of schism. Uh, how did you go about creating that effect in yourself? That um, must have some research. It did, of course. I always do my research. So I, I spent time at an automobile museum in the south of England, called, a place called Bewley, where they have a 1904 Renault. In part one of the novel, it's set in 1904. It features a 1904 Renault car. Very rudimentary early car, one of the very first in Portugal. And so I did my research. I went to this museum in Bewley in the south of England, and I, I spent a lot of hours looking at that car, talking to the people there who knew about their cars. And, and then I, I imagined myself what it would be like, because at that time, no one knew how to drive. There were no street signs there were no nothing it was it was extraordinary uh, it was a feat of technology but one entirely new to everyone and also I, I particularly I have no interest in cars so it was fairly easy for me to imagine this for the first time um and um, the character there, what I was trying to do in part one is in, uh, there's three parts, one set in 1904, one in 38, and one in the 80s. But in fact, the oldest part to me resembles our modern times much more in the sense that you have this technology that overwhelms the character. Mm-hmm. And that to me is today. Today we are overwhelmed by technology, even if we feel we control it. Like everyone, especially even a young person, knows how to handle their cell phone perfectly well. They, they, but in a sense, I don't think they've quite I think it still overwhelms them. The, our very fascination with technology, our incessant fan fascination with, with every new technological bauble, I think means we're still overwhelmed by it, and I think they control our lives more than we realize. I don't think they satisfy us quite as much as we think. We always think they're a convenience, mm-hmm. but I think they're, in fact, extraordinarily stressful conveniences that don't bring us to the places we necessarily want to be, the places of satisfaction or being able to let go that we think they do. These conveniences, I think, ultimately burden us. And I, so in part one, this man is very much, Tomas is the character's name, is very much burdened by this automobile. Tomas is such an interesting character. And this book, too, deals quite a bit with death and parting and the loss of life and, and leaving the people in our lives behind. And I think one of the things you point out is that there can be stories in our own memory that will, like, lie in wait for us to bring them to the forefront where we'll be trapped by those kind of emotions again. And I think that's a really interesting notion of stories as, like, almost like bear traps in our own mind that wait for us. Mm-hmm. So you're saying like negative stories, the idea. Not, not sure, yeah. Well, his memories of Gaspar and, and his wife, I mean, those are just 
Those yeah, no, sometimes that's one of the problems with human beings is we have the gift of memory. That, in fact, here, that's a nice segue to answer a question that I often get as to why I use animals so often. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I use animals in th- this novel, The High Mountains of Portugal and Life of Pi, is because these are both novels where I also discuss faith and religion. I've become interested in faith. Uh, my background is completely secular, but in these, for these two books, I'm interested in faith and religion as an antidote to an excessive use of rationality. And the reason why in these novels where I discuss faith and religion, I use animals, is I think they echo each other very nicely. If you read about religion, you notice a characteristic that is very common to religious figures, whether it be Jesus or Krishna or Buddha or any number of saints and wise men and wise women, and that is the capacity to be in the present moment, to be right here, right now, fully in the moment. That is a characteristic that, you know, Buddhist monks strive their whole meditating lives to achieve. It is one you tangibly feel in Jesus. You, in, you read the Gospels, when, you, when Jesus is addressing a leper, say, or the woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years, you sense that he's really fully there for her, that when he's talking to her, he's fully focused on her, opening up, in a sense, his whole divinity to her entire humanity, that it's a full conscious meeting of two people. That capacity to be in the, in the moment fully it's also shared by animals. Your little pet dog lives in the present moment. That's with because a li- he escapes from story. Yeah, they don't that have stories, so they're, they're in the present moment. In fact, the fact that we have stories, as you just said about, you know, like a bear trap, is a blessing. It weaves our story together, but it also means that stories, you know, based on memory can also assault us. Mm-hmm. Animals are blessed in many ways with amnesia. With you living. Use that phrase once, amnesia. Um, in in the third part, so you describe the. Um, I think it's the dog. The dog. Oh yes, Odo can't remember the. Yeah. Oh yeah, the dogs too. They forget the tension. Yes, yeah. uh, that's a good example. And in, in part three, there's a. They, they live in this village. The the man and this chimpanzee, and eventually these dogs befriend the chimpanzee, and they come to hang around the courtyard with it. And occasionally there's these terrifying fights where Odo, the chimpanzee, gets angry at a dog for a reason that the the, the Canadian the man can't discern. And there's this terrific fight. And yet the very next day, all the tension is gone. And the very dog that has been thrashed by the chimpanzee one day, the next day is just lying quietly right next to the chimpanzee as if nothing had happened. And that's also another thing is that animals, unlike us, tend to be tense when they need to be. And then once the tension is gone, they're completely relaxed. Once again, they're in the present moment. Animals live in the present moment with, of course, some form of memory. You know, you, when you leave for the day, your dog recognizes you when you come back. Why? Because it's, it's in its memory. A memory of you has been triggered by your presence. But other than that, they don't dwell on the past, and they certainly can't contemplate the future. They are little Buddhist monks. So I see in the <laughs> animals, I see in animals a divine quality, and in divine figures an animal-like quality. There's something Jesus-like in animals and something animal-like in Jesus. And the ones that's stuck in the middle are us, who are always thrashing, going over the past, roiling in the past, and worried about the future. And in the meantime, the present moment seems to slip by practically unnoticed. So, very, so I find animals echo the religious very nicely. So that's why in these two books that are about religion, I also use animals. Because I find not only are they religious animals, and that's quite literally, for example, the Old Testament is full of animals. Mm-hmm. They're there for a reason. God didn't create just you know, a, a city block with humans in it. <laughs> no, <laughs> men and animals, men and, men and women and animals were created on the same day. Mm-hmm. There's lots of animals in... in, in, in uh, in Hinduism, you know, the animal is integral to Judaism. Uh, there's a lot of animals in, in religions. That's for a reason. We share this planet with them. There's, there's something religious about them because 
And I say this whether you believe it or not. I'm just talking about the way religion looks at the earth. It looks at it in a very holistic way, in, uh, involving both humans and animals. And in our modernity, we sort of push that aside. Um, for centuries, animals were very distant. They are very subservient, until Darwin brought them suddenly very much closer to us. You were talking about this book being a book of faith, and I thought one of the things I thought was really sweet and lovely in this book, this book has a very sweet tone to it. It's charming. It's it's re- very engaging and gripping without, there. as you say, there's no real horrific violence. There's, in a sense, not a lot happens, mm-hmm. but it's very engaging. And I think that's, I'd like you to just talk about creating narrative tension which you do superbly well. This book is really all story without incident. Yeah, especially well, especially in part three. In mm-hmm. part three, I, the novel's in three parts because I'm exploring. You said it's a novel. Uh, it's a novel about faith, I would say. I, I, I come sort of from the secular mainstream, but it's the duty of the writer to explore. And here I'm exploring faith and religion, not from a faith perspective, in the sense I have no particular faith to peddle, I'm just interested um, as a sort of passionate human being about looking at this phenomenon from an empathetic inside mm-hmm. point of view, but without meaning to flog any perspective. But certainly in part three, um, what I was trying to describe there is a state of being. A state of mindfulness. A that's state of mind. That's a, I mean, this is what Peter and Udo reach is an exact description of what meditation teachers and neuroscientists would describe as mindfulness. Yep, exactly. Mindfulness, a state of grace. That's exactly what I was trying to describe there. Because what I was doing in this novel in three parts is positing three different relationships with some object of faith. Now, that faith in this case is religion. It's a religious figure, but it could be anyone. It could be a political figure, someone you love, um, a football team. doesn't really matter. It's something that you love beyond reason for reasons that you can't pin down. It's some, something that has moved you. I was trying to posit three different relationships. So in part one, Tomas is, uh, has a broken relationship with the faith object. He's, he's, he's angry. He's turned his back to the world and to God. Quite literally, he walks backwards. And a theme throughout the novel. Yeah. In part two, the doctor, Dr. Lozora, has faith, but it's hard to have faith when it's tested dearly. And in part three, I was trying to pause out what would have been, in this case with Jesus, but I said it would apply to any faith object, another religious figure or Karl Marx or whoever, a celebrity, what would be the closest relationship you could have with that faith object? And I figured it'd be, well, in be in their real presence. So I was starting to think in terms of Jesus, who would have had the most intense, intimate relationship with Jesus? And it would be someone who had actually encountered Jesus. So the, hun- the few hundreds of people who, in the course of Jesus's, you know, two, three-year ministry would have actually encountered. Now, some, of course, some would be very intimate, the disciples, of course, the, the ones who literally traveled with them day in and day out, who slept with them every night, traveled with them every day, were listening to him every hour. That would be the most intense. But other people who encounter him in a more fleeting way, who were just briefly addressed by him, mm-hmm. that still... Were in, those were still encounters that's, that were seared into their minds, and they spent the rest of their lives talking about it. So I figured that would be the most intense one, and that's what I tried to reproduce in part three, is this man who's living with this chimpanzee, and this chimpanzee is, is a symbol of, the, uh, of Christ, and being, in a sense, in a state of grace, of pure mindfulness. And I'm trying to describe that. So there's a case where you don't have much happening. I mean, they go for walks. No, it's uh, exciting as hell to read. Well, because it's I'm beautifully s- written. Yeah, exactly. It's a sort of heightened state 
where things are still happening, but they're not necessarily plot things. There's an evolving relationship. Uh, he's trying to understand the chimpanzee. It is just being its mysterious self. Just as the disciples were always trying to understand Jesus and not getting his parables. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, that, there's something, I think, appealing about mystery. And in this part three, the mystery is this chimpanzee. I, I think that um, mystery, in a sense in the way that you understand it in this book and maybe in the way that we understand it as a species without really comprehending it. Mystery is that which keeps our narrative moving forward. It is like the little carrot that's attached to the, the string on the stick in front of, uh, in front of the donkey. And yeah. we are the donkeys, and, and that's what the mystery is. Uh, yeah, yes, with one caveat that at the end of it, when you eat the carrot, it has to be satisfying. Mm -hmm. the, the plot, the problem, I think, with stuff that is too plot-driven, and a lot of, you know, um, page-turners will operate on that, a lot of TV shows, a lot of movies will work on this stuff. Just keep the reader watching, keep the reader reading, the, the watcher viewing, you know, lure them by a little hook each time. That's fine, but you, if it's going to be that narratively driven, at the end of it's got to be worth it. Mm. We've all had that experience of, you know, reading uh, reading a book or seeing a movie, and oh, it's really good, and then, uh, like, as you're watching, you're saying, God, this is thrilling, this is thrilling, this is thrilling, and at the end of it, oh, the payoff is not there, and then it's instantly forgettable. Yeah. And I think that's the difference, in fact, between, you know, uh, uh, literature and genre. Mm -hmm. Genre fulfills your expectations. Literature uh, doesn't, and because of that, because you have to work at it, because the expectations aren't so conventional, you have to work it and it stays with you. So, you know, I'll give you an example of a, uh, well, there's hundreds, literally hundreds, but, you know, Kafka. Kafka is, 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 a, is, a, is, a, is a genius because his stories don't fit any convention. They're, they're completely strange, and yet well, by talking about our human condition, uh, they're, they're fascinating. They make you work, and people who read Kafka remember him for the rest of their lives. You know, the metamorphosis. Man wakes up, Gregor Samsa wakes up in the morning, and he's a beetle. Yeah, he I is a dung beetle. I can remember the absolute, I, Gregor, transfer, Gregor, Gregor woke up one morning to find himself transformed into a monstrous vermin. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was the, uh, the opening line I had. And it's an <laughs> astonishing book, you know. It's so there there's a good story, but beyond that there's something upholding that story. Otherwise, you know, just plot turns is like sort of sugar. Mm. Yeah, it's really just really good, but it's not good for you. It doesn't get lead you anywhere. It's not it's not good. You want a slow carbohydrate, not a fast carbohydrate. I think uh what I was just talking to Eric Weiner about, uh, he was investigating genius, and one of the things he said uh, struck me as, as being relevant. He says that talent hits the target no one else can hit. Genius hits the target no one else can see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that that's the difference between genre, maybe, and literature. No, absolutely. No, we read genre stuff to be comforted. Mm -hmm. You know, you have strong expectations. You know, a romance will have romance, and... You know, you want the girl will get the guy. There'll be adversity, but they'll get the guy. You you read genre fiction to be comforted. Mm -hmm. You read literature to be uh, to be discomforted. To be discomforted. Mm -hmm. You read literature to be shaken up. Uh. Well, I think one of the things, though, I think about your book. Well, I think it, it's definitely literature. It's charming and it's it makes you feel good. I mean, it's not, it, this is not a book that you walk away from disturbed and upset, even though I have to say there's plenty of disturbing and upsetting mm. things that happen in it. Well, you know what? I, I find, first of all, working on a book 
it takes a lot of effort, it takes mm -hmm. a lot of time. And I do, it's not that you reduce art to making people feel good, that art is somehow like some sort of self-help method, <laughs> but it is an exploration of the human condition. And ultimately, I believe the human condition is worth living. I'm not into literary nihilism, which I find nonsense because it's so much work writing a book. Mm. You know, 330 pages takes a long time to write. Why would I write all that to finally say that it's not worth living? Of course, the human experience is worth living. In fact, more than that, it's worth living well. And how do we get to that? What does it mean? To live well, which is why I say I like these novels of ideas. I like exploring ideas through the form of stories. You know, just straight facts, straight you know ideas. A non, you know, an essay on happiness I think has far less appeal than a novel on what it means to be happy. Well, these stories too, I think they also explore family, and and I think family is one way that we create story. We let not only that we create story, but that we let story be created for us in our lives by virtue of the fact that we're related to people or that we come back to story mm -hmm. with those people. That's a, a, a pull for us. Absolutely. I think fa family, and, and whether, the, whether they're too. real families or, or created families, exactly. are narrative units. Mm -hmm. And, you know, each day is a new chapter. And, uh, uh, you know, lives develop, successful lives develop like, like some kinds of novels. Now, of course, there isn't the resolution, as you were saying earlier. There isn't the purpose. There isn't the, you know, the, the more your life resembles art, the greater the resolution. The <laughs> life that is the most artless, that the least resembles a narrative, will be the one that lets the least satisfying. And so that requires a, an effort of the will. You know, that's why I think people ultimately are religious, because religion religions are necessarily narrative. That's something that's always struck me, how science is not narrative. Mm, no. There is a history of science, obviously, but intrinsically, science is not narrative. It is a question of observations and formulations that account for the universe, but don't weave a story. Whereas well, it's, uh, the thing about science is that, it, by definition, has no end because it's always correcting itself. And it's always self-effacing. So, sure. you know, when you talk about science, we mean the latest science. You know, mm -hmm. no, no one ever now studies Ptolemaic science mm -hmm. or, you know, pre-Newtonian uh, uh, pre science. That is, it's, that's for the history of science, but living science is the, is the la up to the last minute science. Mm -hmm. And it's not narrative. Whereas what's interesting about religions is all religions are narrative-based. All religions tell a story. They all have, you know, a creation myth. They all have characters to whom things happen. Stero and religions are all presented in stories. And I think that addresses, once again, our, our nature as storytelling animals. We need this to make sense of who we are, who we are. Um, hence the necessity to, to the what's great about fiction. I think it is the greatest expression of who we are. If you want an understanding of someone or of a country, the best way to do that of course, you can read histories of and geographies of, but really, it's novels about that really. If you want to know 19th century Russia, you read the great Russians. Mm. You will know something about the Russian sensibility through reading, you know, Tolstoy, Goncharov, uh, Dostoevsky, all of those. When you were talking about religion, it made me think, too, that one of the things that religion provides, every single religion provides the end. Well, that's what I think religion. I think religion. <laughs> religion started because of the end. Yeah. You know, uh, 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 I think you know what it's interesting how humans have religion, but gods don't have religions, because you know, they have no end. You know, we have an end, so we have we've created them. We believe in them. They don't have their own religion. It's interesting that if you look at the Greek myths, uh, Greek religion, you know, humans believed in gods, 
And they were, they, those gods acted pretty human, too. They, they were did. Not but it's interesting how they themselves don't have a religion. It's interesting how gods themselves, the Greek gods, who are like a squabbling family, they don't have another religion. They had uh, previous gods who they supplanted. You know, Zeus and his brothers and sisters o- o- overtook uh, Cronus, threw him over. But they themselves don't have religion. Gods don't need religion. But we do. And interestingly enough, uh, the they overthrew Father Time, mm. the narrative, the, the, ac- the actual creator of narrative. I had never thought about it that way. Cronus, yeah. Uh, yeah, for the time, yes, they do. Yeah. Well, because the idea is that they live outside of time. They create time like, like you'd use a particular color paint. It's yeah, one trait that they play with. You, this book, of course, deals extensively with home, and we were talking about home, and one of the things that happens is um, uh, geophagy. Where did you encounter that? That's an interesting idea. So geophagy, I think that's how it's pronounced, yeah. but I'm not sure, actually. Mm. I'm terrible at pronouncing these words I've never actually seen pronounced. Um, that takes place in, in, in part uh, one. Tomas, the character, has discovered this diary written by a priest in the 17th century on this tiny Portuguese colony called Sao Tome, which is off the western coast of Africa at is the level real? of the... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. At the level of the equator. It's two islands, actually, Sao Tome and Principe, St. Thomas and Prince, two islands that have were long, long, for a long time, Portuguese colonies. And they were used as, as holding stations of, for slaves during the slave trade. The Portuguese were very active slave traders. They'd get slaves from Mozambique and Angola, and they'd often their ships would stop in Sao Tome to resupply before they'd do the middle passage, the crossing of the Atlantic to Brazil to supply uh, the cane fields of Brazil with slaves. Um, there's a disgruntled priest there, a priest who's profoundly, profoundly homesick. Not only homesick for Portugal, but you know, homesick of, of another place where he might be happy. And he's a, a slaver, he's a priest for slave ships. So in other words, he blesses these slaves, because even if they're slaves, they're, they're still held to be part of the family of God. So his duty, as was the case during slave times, slavery times of priests who would be blessing slaves to welcome to the, to the, to the, to the, into the arms of God, is to slaves who you know, wouldn't speak the language and didn't practice that faith. But anyway, that's an aside. And uh, he's d- in deep <laughs> distress, and one day um, he observes four captives being taken off a, a ship. And it's uh, through their distress that he finally realizes ho- his own distress. I forgot what your question was. Why am I mentioning this? Oh, oh, um, Geoffrey. Oh, yeah, and at one point this priest um, notices slaves doing that. And that also was, uh, I, I found in my research, that slaves would do that. Now, it wasn't clear why. Was it to you know, in a sense, a, a kind of hunger expressing itself, that they're so hungry. Like, you know how when sometimes you're hungry and you don't want sweets, you want something savory. Mm-hmm. You know, you, your body's telling you, like, you can't just eat sweets, I want something healthier. Is it perhaps these slaves trying to get some sort of mineral content? Or is it just an expression of, 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 of apathy? They just want to chew on something, you know, because they're bored. But it was, it, was, it was witnessed. And so I just thought, what an interesting thing to try to eat the earth itself. And so the priest himself t- t- attests to doing it. It's such an it's such an evocative idea of consume it, consuming mm-hmm. home mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Walking backwards mm. plays a big part in this book. We encounter it everywhere. Uh, it's such a fascinating idea. Why did you come up with it? Did that come up out of the creation of Tomas, or is that something you saw yourself? No, it's something I created because so Tomas, uh, in in a, in the course of one week, loses his lover, their son, their six-year-old son, and his father, um, father in unrelated circumstances, his his lover and their child to diphtheria, and so he's a man thrown into despair. Imagine losing everyone that you you love most in the course of one week. Um, 
And so the first thing he does to express his outrage, uh, and he says it's to object. That's his key thing. It's not just that he's grieving, he's objecting. Uh, yeah, and I so like that. That's an important term. Yeah. He, he, he says, how can I express my outrage? And he says, well, I, I'm going to walk backwards. I'm going to turn my back to the world and to God. And so he spends now, whenever he walks, he, he walks backwards. And so he, he, you know, he, he rotates his sh uh, head, his face over his shoulders. He glances on either side to look behind him, and otherwise he walks backwards. And that I did that to sort of set up to the other way that he chooses objecting, which is finding this object, which he hopes to give God his comeuppance for what God has done to him. Um, so uh, to me, walking backwards was the first step towards this greater act of objection, of rebellion that is expressed for the rest of part one when he seeks this object that is revealed at the very end of part one. And I don't want to say too much about the object, but one thing I think you do do a very good job of is creating an almost uh, Lovecraftian sense to that object in that you give us like little bits and pieces of what it might be or could be mm -hmm. and let the reader's imagination build it out to something far more terrifying and imbued with meaning and fear that you don't even need to write about. And I think that that's a, an interesting technique to see used in this kind of novel. Yeah, it's actually finally, in an odd way, perhaps a slightly underwhelming object. And yet, it's utterly unique. It really, really is utterly unique. It's never existed. It's never been thought of. It's an utterly unique object. And it's one that I, you know, hopefully... Did you I, create I, it yourself? Yeah, I did. Oh. I think the reader will... Uh, whether they care to or not, but it's for up to the reader to let them see how they feel about it, wh whether it means anything to them. And it certainly is meaningful to Tomas, although at the end he's disappointed to have found it. It hasn't... You know, revenge is... You can be vengeful and grudgeful for years and years and years, but the ultimately I don't think it's a satisfying emotion. It's very rare that revenge will satisfy you deeply. You get caught in a dynamic there that spirals down and you never get out of it. So... Uh, Tomas is vengeful in his quest for this object. When he finally gets it, it's not w unique as it is. It's n it doesn't s finally satisfy him. Each each part in the novel st starts with someone having lost everything and being suffering, and ends with something asking for help and getting help. So Tomas at the very end calls out, "Father, I need you." And it's not clear whether it's God the Father, whether it's literally his father that he's invoking his father, or whether it's uh, a priest who's just appeared on the plaza. Whether he's addressing here, I, I leave that, that for the reader to decide. And in part two, uh, you know, the doctor is weeping in his office, and uh, his secretary, who's outside his office, you know, hears him and eventually walks in to try to comfort it. And last part, the the the, the senator also cries for help, and his chimpanzee comes to his help. So, because I think ultimately, at the end of our lives, all we can do is is uh, seek old maps. I love old maps, and this book. Reading this book is like pouring over this old detailed map that merges from one time to another to another. How much time did you spend pouring over old maps to make this book? Well, not as much as you'd think, because mostly were maps in my mind. I literally poured on maps of Portugal. I did do, uh, I went to Portugal. I've been to Portugal a number of times. I was the first country I backpacked in on my own. Then I went when I was uh, touring with Life of Pi. And then for this book, The High Mountains of Portugal, I went to Lisbon, to Portugal twice um, to do research. There I went to Lisbon and I, I rented a car and I drove the route that Tomás drives in 1904, so avoiding new highways built by the European Union and taking roads that have existed for a long time. 
And so there I did literally consult maps. But honestly, overall, looking at this book, I also looked at maps of Lisbon, come to think of it, Lisbon in 1904. And I did look at maps of Sao Tome, that Portuguese colony. So I did, but more as a springboard, because mm. otherwise the maps that I was drawing were sort of maps in my head. So they were uh, created, maps of, maps of story. Mm. I, I love the story within the story of Father Ulysses. Mm. I think that's really beautifully rendered. And, and the quotes that you have from him in there, and they're written in a very different prose style, obviously, from the other parts of the book. Uh, talk about creating that character within, that story within the story and the character within the character. Well, that comes from the fact that I needed that object that I've been talking about that Tomas is seeking. I needed to have it come from somewhere, so I need to create a backstory for it. And it also allowed me uh, at a deeper level, because this object is not just a sort of a random object, it's, it, it echoes throughout the rest of the piece. In fact, that object stays in, the, in, in part three, takes place in the same village where this object is found. So this object is still there. Um, uh, in fact, it's, it's observed at the end of part three. The, the modern people in that village in the 1980s finally realize what that object is. It's been there their whole lives. They've only, finally only seen it for what it is, thanks to an insight. So, um, so I created that backstory in Sao Tome, in part because it's fascinating. The slave trade, the idea of humans buying and selling slaves, is deeply disturbing. And you'd think deeply antithetical to Christianity, although in fact it wasn't. The Catholic Church had a very ambiguous relationship to slavery, in a way that you can kind of see if you understand the idea. The idea being that, that someone is a slave is neither here nor there because a slave, by dint of effort, could be freer, could be closer to God than someone who's putatively free and is their master. So uh, we're all, in a sense, slaves to s temptation and to sin, and that some people are literally slaves is, was just a detail. So um, it had nothing to do with spiritual effort. Uh, we're all enslaved, and we all need to free ourselves from sin. And as I said, the status of being slave was of secondary consideration. Now, to say that is to forget the tremendous suffering, of course, that slaves have gone through. Um, so I created that whole story because I needed, it needed, I needed it to supply the object, and the research led me to this island and to the idea of the slave trade and why he would have created that object in question. I love the... One of the things that makes this uh, novel really fun to read are the lists. Mm. You have a lot of fun with lists. It's like you decide to... Uh, sit down and sing for a while almost. <laughs> They're almost like song lyrics. I've always liked lists. There's lists in uh, in Life of Pi of all the things on the lifeboat, and uh, I've done lists. I find lists kind of satisfying because it's precisely what we were saying earlier about how we're storytelling animals. I find that lists never just stay as lists, that in reading a list, you start weaving a narrative in your mind. It's a real, they're a propulsive reading. Yeah, there's a list because there's a sequence of things, and yet you don't read them all on their own, you start weaving something. You know, what is first on the list is just first. But then once you read a second thing, you start thinking of that second thing in relation to the first, and the third in relation to the first two, etc. So I find in reading a, a, a well-put-together list, you start weaving something, you start creating something out, uh, out of that. And it's not just lists that tell a story. It's the human body that tells a story, too. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm guessing, did, did you read stiff 
by Mary Roach. Oh, I met, I met Mary Roach. Okay. I, I, I never met her once. Well, what I did there, that, so in part two, it's a pathologist, and he at one point performs an autopsy. So for that, I read old autopsy manuals, old pathology manuals from mm. the beginning of the 20th century, written in this lovely style that is, you know, they don't use, I don't suppose they write manuals like that anymore. And I also assisted, I witnessed two autopsies. Um, because it's, the fact is, the body is a book. The body really is a book, and each organ is a chapter telling a story. And an autopsy tells a story. It tells a story not only of how a person died, but in a sense how they lived. Uh, 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 there'll be traces of how we live in every corner of our body, and the, and, the, and the pathologist lures that out. And a pathology report is, once again, a feat of storytelling related to a body. Even if the body is dead, unconscious, cannot speak, cannot think, the body still gives off that story, the story of its death, to this, to the perceptive eye, to the trained eye of a pathologist. They can look at a body, open it up, and uh, uh, read the story of a life through the death of that life. This book is, has an interesting pace to it. Uh, I, the way each of the parts fits together and the pacing within the parts how much of that was a result of I, what I would call poetry and how much of it was a result of what I might call pl planning? It's all planned. I, I, I work very carefully. I mean, the novel is, a, is, a, is an artifice, is a, is, mm -hmm. a, is a genre, a, a creation with its rules, which, of course, you know, every rule can be broken, but you don't want to break all of them at the same time. Right. So uh, I happen to be one of these writers who very carefully constructs his book. So the obvious example is Life of Pi. You know, when I started writing the author's note, I knew exactly how the book would finish. That chapter 100 would be an excerpt of the report from the investigators. Before I wrote a word, I did two and a half years of research that generated copious amounts of notes, which I cut up and put into envelopes and ordered in the sequence they would appear in the books. And those notes were the backbone of every chapter. So I'd planned everything out, sort of like an architect doing a plan for a building. You mm -hmm. don't just start building a building without knowing what its form, what its function will be. Form will follow function. So uh, a, an architect starts drawing a plan, and then they start building. Same thing with me. I, I very, very carefully write an outline, and then I start writing. And these notes that I use for each chapter is the starting point for that chapter. So there's still invention and creation, but within a certain framework. And of course, there's things that will come, and it'll have even more recent ideas that are genuinely spontaneous. But I'd say that, it, this, that this, my method is perfectly summarized by the famous line from Wordsworth that poetry is emotion in tranquility recollected. So it starts with an emotion. It starts with a creative insight. But then, in a sense, you calm down and you sift that creative insight. You, you go through it carefully. You sift it. You examine it from every angle. And then you lay it down on the page thoughtfully. So the, 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 the excitement of, ex of, of an emotion, of an event, is properly captured on, on a page only after a period of cooling off in which you assess the best way to represent it on the page. Wow, because the book feels so spontaneous and so organic. Uh, I mean, it's like a plant that's grown, but you're saying it's a bonsai. Absolutely. Well, listen, it's like you, you see people <laughs> dancing on a video. It looks like they're just jumping about. They've practiced Hours after hours after hour, it's it's a uh, no. That you know, it is interesting. Art is an artifice. Stories don't just emanate out of nothing. They are carefully constructed. Um, it demands uh, at every level. You know, the the, the child that's, that's telling its little invention. I have a two-year. I have four children. One of them is a two-year-old. He's constantly just 
telling the weirdest things. In a sense, he's practicing his storytelling. And there it is genuinely spontaneous. He's making nonsense associations that are a delight. As we get older, you start to get, we start to get better at constructing our stories. But it is a construct. It is something that must be built. This idea, and I know it's a very popular notion of the, you know, the writer madly writing away. That's true when I was writing my notes. There are obviously moments you are, in a sense, with a little net trying to capture these fleeting fish swimming by. And uh, there is genuine spontaneity. But then finally to marshal them together into, into a novel or a sonnet or a play uh, demands thoughtfulness and craftsmanship. Um, uh, uh, and that you know, takes time and effort. I mean, this novel took me four or five years to write. For all that planning, however, there's one thing that you can't plan for, which is the witness to the story. You talk about story and witnesses. Your stories all have readers, and I think one of the things that's interesting about story, it's where it's um, a movie where all you're given is a very detailed screenplay, and you, the reader, are... The producer, director, actor, star, and everything else. Uh, absolutely, you're right. I, I, I often say this, that, that a story is a co-creation. Mm-hmm. The book is 50%. The other 50% is what the reader brings to it. And, uh, and a perfect example of that is Life of Pi. I lo- I, you know, I'm a Canadian. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a 52-year-old Canadian. I was in my late 30s, early 40s. I'm in late 30s when I wrote Life of Pi. I come from a time and a place and a culture, and yet that book has been received by people from vastly different cultures. They've taken it on as their own sort of story, and that's because they brought something to it. And that obviously explains why two different people will read the same book and they'll have vastly different opinions because they brought something different to it. It's the same book, but they brought something different to it. And a book is such a loving, engaging, long thing that you really involve yourself a long time when you read a book, much longer than you would when you just see a, you know, a two-hour TV show. Um, so little is supplied in a book. It's only words. And as you said, you have to construct the sound, the soundscapes, the landscapes, the tone of the dialogue, the, the settings, they all have to be created in your mind. And so, you, as you said, you become the stage director, the actor, the set designer, the costume designer. That's very exciting. So that's why I think the written word goes so deep, because in a sense it explodes in your mind with color, and, and we love that. and we, That's how it stays with us. And I suspect that is why Jesus spoke in parables. Well, he could have just said the Ten Commandments over and over. He could have just flatly said what the plan was. Instead, he speaks in these parables, some of which seem to be fairly easy to understand, but others are very abstruse. Why did he do that? Because it would make us work. It's a, you know, a parable, as I say in the novel, a parable is like a suitcase. You have to open it up to see what's inside. Um, they make us work, and that, works, that, that suits the human mind. It suits our, our imagination. This notion of unpacking is important in this book. Mm. And <clears throat> I think this is a book that asks for and will reward more than one reading. I think that's perhaps part of your intent. Well, thank you. That's, that's very flattering. Uh, I, I hope so. Uh, um, I do sort of, it's not a question of you know, having little secrets and little things that you have to guess or you know, have to be teased out. But one hopes that a good novel bears a rereading and that in reading it a second time, you will see things that you hadn't seen the first time. That's very much the case with Life of Pi. I think people have read Life of Pi more than one time, have in a sense read two different books each time. I've read a different book each time. Well, I, it's, I guess, the old parable of the man crossing the river. You're not the same man. It's not the same river. It's not the same <laughs> river. That's true. Uh, this book does a, a beautiful job of talking about what happens to us after death. And, and I think that that's an interesting perception because on one hand, you 
expend a lot of emotion and involve the reader a lot on what happens to people who have experienced death of others in their lives that matter. And then you take us to the exact opposite side of the equation. And I think that that helps the reader make that journey too. And, I, and it's not a coincidence that hap- that happens in the middle of the book. Mm. Yeah, I, I've, I'm not at all a morbid person, and I'm certainly not depressive, but I has always found death to be interesting. I used to be a volunteer in palliative care, uh, care for the dying in Montreal. And I always found it uh, not saddening, but sobering. Mm-hmm. You, if you, uh, life is defined by its end. Life makes sense only in relation to death. And you cannot, you should not never be aware of death. You should always be aware of the end of things, because then that gives to the thing that you're doing its quality. The fact that it's ephemeral is one of its defining characteristics, one, in fact, that gives it its value. If it was never-ending, it would lose its value, because it would be never-ending. It, w- it would be always there. Um, so I, I'm, I'm always in my books, like Life of Pi starts with a shipwreck, Pi losing his family. In this one, every single section starts with someone dying. To me, that's not an end, that's a beginning. That's a beginning. And in, I, I, in part two, yes, there was an autopsy where I'm looking at not only the meaning of death, but the, f- the fact of death. And I'm constantly wondering to myself, what does death mean to us? And I don't mean it in a morbid fashion, nor in an obviously emotive, you know, it, death is sad. Yes, but what do we do with death? How do we place it in a greater context? And that's exactly what religion talks about. Religion is all about death, and religion is also joy. It's interesting how those two match. I think truly religious people are joyful people. And yet, every week on whatever their holy day is, in some ways or another, they're uh, facing the fact that they will one day die. So it's one of the magic things about a proper relationship with death is that it's not, uh, it's not a sad experience, it's a joyful experience because you are putting death in a greater context and that's what gives it its, its, its joy. If you have no context for death, it is that mind-numbing, terrifying thing that it is to purely materialist people who have no tools whatsoever to deal with the end of things. And we live in a culture that it lives in, that is in denial of death. We, we live as we're forever young, and then one day death surprises us, and we have no tools to deal with it. Um, and that, that, that is devastating, because it not only means that you have no tools to deal with death, but I think it also is a commentary on our lives. If we live lives with no awareness of death, I think we live lives of sort of tragic frivolity. I've been speaking with Jan Martel. His new book is The High Mountains of Portugal. Thank you for joining me, Jan. It was a pleasure, Rick. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.